to, honor hold the preeminence of the old hands towns. The glory of the Venetian Adriatic is gone, but that the sea has still a local significance is proven by the vast sums spent by Austria and Hungary on their handmade harbors of Trieste and Fiume. The analytical geographer, therefore, while studying a given combination of geographic forces, must be prepared for a momentous readjustment and a new interplay after any marked turning point in the economic, cultural, or world relations of a people. Skepticism as to the effect of geographic conditions upon human development is apparently justifiable, owing to the multiplicity of the underlying causes and the difficulty of distinguishing between stronger and weaker factors on the one hand, as between permanent and temporary effects on the other. We see the result, but find it difficult to state the equation producing this result, but the important thing is to avoid seizing upon one or two conspicuous geographic elements in the problem and ignoring the rest. The physical environment of a people consists of all the natural conditions to which they have been subjected, not merely apart. Geography admits no single blanket theory. The slow historical development of the Russian folk has been due to many geographic causes to excessive cold and deficiency of rain. An outskirt location on the Asiatic border of Europe exposed to the attacks of nomadic hordes, a meager and, for the most part, ice-bound coast which was slowly acquired, and a diversified surface, a lack of segregated regions wherein infant civilization might be cradled, and a vast area of unfenced plains wherein the national energies spread out thin and dissipated themselves, the better Baltic and Black Sea coasts, the fertility of its Ukraine soil and location next to a wide-awake Germany along the western frontier had helped to accelerate progress, but the slow-moving body carried too heavy a drag. The law of the resolutions of forces applies in geography as in the movement of planets. Failure to recognize this fact often enables superficial critics of anthropogeography to make a brave show of argument. The analysis of these interacting forces and of their various combinations requires careful investigation. Let us consider the interplay of the forces of land and sea apparent in every country with a maritime location. In some cases a small, infertile, niggardly country conspires with a beckoning sea to drive its sons out upon the deep, in others a wide territory with a generous soil keeps its well-fed children at home and silences the call of the sea. In ancient Phoenicia and Greece, in Norway, Finland, New England, in Savage Child and Tierra del Fuego, and the Indian coast district of British Columbia and southern Alaska, a long, broken shoreline, numerous harbors, outlying islands, abundant timber for the construction of ships, difficult communication by land, all tempted the inhabitants to a seafaring life. While the sea drew, the land drove in the same direction, their hilly or mountainous interior putting obstacles in the way of landward expansion, sterile slopes, a paucity of level, arable land, an excessive or deficient rainfall withholding from agriculture the reward of tillage some or all of these factors combined to compel the inhabitants to seek on the sea the livelihood denied by the land. Here both forces worked in the same direction. In England conditions were much the same, and from the 16th century produced there a predominant maritime development which was due not solely to a long indented coastline and an exceptional location for participating in European and American trade, its limited island area. Its large extent of rugged hills and chalky soil fit only for pasturage, and the lack of a really generous natural endowment, made it slow to answer the demands of a growing population, till the industrial development of the 19th century exploited its mineral wealth. So the English turned to the sea to fish, to trade, to colonize. Holland's conditions made for the same development, 
she united advantages of coastline and position with a small infertile territory, consisting chiefly of water-soaked grazing lands, when at the zenith of her maritime development, a native authority estimated that the soil of Holland could not support more than one-eighth of her inhabitants, the meager products of the land had to be eked out by the harvest of the sea, fish assumed an important place in the diet of the Dutch, and when a process of curing it was discovered, laid the foundation of Holland's export trade, a geographical location central to the Baltic and North Sea countries, and accessible to France and Portugal, combined with a position at the mouth of the great German rivers made it absorb the carrying trade of Northern Europe, land and sea cooperated in its maritime development, often the forces of land and sea are directly opposed, if a country's geographic conditions are favorable to agriculture and offer room for growth of population, the land forces prevail, because man is primarily a terrestrial animal. Such a country illustrates what Chisholm, with anachnicity of speech, calls the influence of bread power on history, as opposed to Mahan's sea power. France, like England, had a long coastline, abundant harbors, and an excellent location for maritime supremacy and colonial expansion, but her larger area and greater amount of fertile soil put off the hour of a redundant population such as England suffered from even in Henry VIII's time. Moreover, in consequence of steady continental expansion from the 12th to the 18th century and a political unification which made its area more effective for the support of the people, the French of Richelieu's time, except those from certain districts, took to the sea, not by national impulse as did the English and Dutch, but rather under the spur of government initiative. They therefore achieved far less in maritime trade and colonization. In ancient Palestine, a long stretch of coast, poorly equipped with harbors but accessible to the rich Mediterranean trade, failed to offset the attraction of the gardens and orchards of the Jezreel Valley and the pastures of the Judean Hills, or to overcome the land-borne predilections and aptitudes of the desert-bred Jews. Similarly, the river-fringed peninsulas of Virginia and Maryland, opening wide their doors to the incoming sea, were powerless, nevertheless, to draw the settlers away from the riotous productiveness of the wide tidewater plains. Here again the geographic force of the land outweighed that of the sea and became the dominant factor in directing the activities of the inhabitants. The two antagonistic geographic forces may be both of the land, one born of a country's topography, the other of its location. Switzerland's history has for centuries shown the conflict of two political policies, one a policy of cantonal and communal independence, which has sprung from the division of that mountainous country into segregated districts and the other one of political centralization, dictated by the necessity for cooperation to meet the dangers of Switzerland's central location mid a circle of larger and stronger neighbors. Local geographic conditions within the Swiss territory fixed the national ideal as a league of sovereign cantons, to use the term of their constitution, enjoying a maximum of individual rights and privileges, and tolerating a minimum of interference from the central authority. Here was physical dismemberment coupled with mutual political repulsion, but a location at the meeting place of French, German, Austrian and Italian frontiers laid upon them the distasteful necessity of union within to withstand aggressions crowding upon them from without. Hence the growth of the Swiss constitution since 1798 has meant a fight of the Confederation against the canton in behalf of general rights, expanding the functions of the central government, contracting those of canton and commune. Every country forms an independent whole, and as such finds its national history influenced by its local climate, soil, relief, its location whether inland or maritime, its river highways, and its boundaries of mountain, 
sea, or desert, but it is also a link in a great chain of lands, and therefore may feel a shock or vibration imparted at the remotest end. The gradual desiccation of Western Asia which took a fresh start about 2.000 years ago caused that great exodus and displacement of peoples known as the Voelker Wandering, and thus contributed to the downfall of Rome. It was one factor in the Saxon conquest of Britain and the final peopling of Central Europe. The impact of the Turkish hordes hurling themselves against the defenses of Constantinople in 1453 was felt only 40 years afterward by the far-off shores of savage America. Earlier still it reached England as the revival of learning, and it gave Portugal a shock which started its navigators towards the Cape of Good Hope in their search for a sea route to India. The history of South Africa is intimately connected with the Isthmus of Suez. It owes its Portuguese, Dutch, and English populations to that barrier on the Mediterranean pathway to the Orient. Its importance as a way station on the outside route to India fluctuates with every crisis in the history of Suez. The geographic factors in history appear now as conspicuous direct effects of environment, such as the forest warfare of the American Indian or the irrigation works of the Pueblo tribes, now as a group of indirect effects, operating through the economic, social and political activities of a people. These remote or secondary results are often of supreme importance, they are the ones which give the final stamp to the national temperament and character and yet in them the causal connection between environment and development is far from obvious. They have, therefore, presented pitfalls to the precipitate theorizer. He has either interpreted them as the direct effect of some geographic cause from which they were wholly divorced and thus arrived at conclusions which further investigation failed to sustain, or seeing no direct and obvious connection. He has denied the possibility of a generalization. Montesquieu ascribes the immutability of religion, manners, custom and laws in India and other Oriental countries to their warm climate. Bokal attributes a highly wrought imagination and gross superstition to all people, like those of India, living in the presence of great mountains and vast plains, knowing nature only in its overpowering aspects, which excite the fancy and paralyze reason. He finds, on the other hand, an early predominance of reason in the inhabitants of a country like ancient Greece, where natural features are on a small scale more comprehensible, nearer the measure of man himself, the scientific geographer, grown suspicious of the omnipotence of climate and cautious of predicating immediate psychological effects which are easy to assert but difficult to prove, approaches the problem more indirectly and reaches a different solution. He finds that geographic conditions have condemned India to isolation. On the land side, a great sweep of high mountains has restricted intercourse with the interior, on the sea side. The deltaic swamps of the Indus and Ganges rivers and in an unbroken shoreline, backed by mountains on the west of the peninsula and by coastal marshes and lagoons on the east, have combined to reduce its accessibility from the ocean. The effect of such isolation is ignorance, superstition, and the early crystallization of thought and custom. Ignorance involves the lack of material for comparison, hence a restriction of the higher reasoning processes and in an unscientific attitude of mind which gives imagination free play. In contrast, the accessibility of Greece and its focal location in the ancient world made it an intellectual clearinghouse for the eastern Mediterranean. The general information gathered there afforded material for wide comparison. It fed the brilliant reason of the Athenian philosopher and the trained imagination which produced the masterpieces of Greek art and literature. Heinrich von Trich, in his recent, Politik, 
imitates the direct inference of Bökel when he ascribes the absence of artistic and poetic development in Switzerland and the Alpine lands to the overwhelming aspect of nature there, its majestic sublimity which paralyzes the mind. He reinforces his position by the fact that, by contrast, the lower mountains and hill country of Swabia, Franconia and Thuringia, where nature is gentler, stimulating, appealing, and not overpowering, have produced many poets and artists. The facts are incontestable. They reappear in France in the geographical distribution of the awards made by the Paris Salon of 1896. Judged by these awards, the rough highlands of Savoy, Alpine Province, the massive eastern Pyrenees, and the Auvergne Plateau, together with the barren peninsula of Brittany, are singularly lacking in artistic instinct, while art nourishes in all the river lowlands of France. Moreover, French men of letters, by the distribution of their birthplaces, are essentially products of fluvial valleys and plains, rarely of upland and mountain. This contrast has been ascribed to a fundamental ethnic distinction between the Teutonic population of the lowlands and the Alpine or Celtic stock which survives in the isolation of highland and peninsula, thus making talent an attribute of race. But the Po Valley of northern Italy, whose population contains a strong infusion of this supposedly stultifying Alpine blood, and the neighboring lowlands and hill country of Tuscany show an enormous preponderance of intellectual and artistic power over the highlands of the peninsula. Hence the same contrast appears among different races under like geographic conditions. Moreover, in France other social phenomena, such as suicide, divorce, decreasing birth rate, and radicalism in politics, show the same startling parallelism of geographic distribution, and these cannot be attributed to the stimulating or depressing effect of natural scenery upon the human mind. Mountain regions discourage the budding of genius because they are areas of isolation, confinement, remote from the great currents of men and ideas that move along the river valleys. They are regions of much labor and little leisure, of poverty today and anxiety for the morrow, of toil-cramped hands and toil-dulled brains. In the fertile alluvial plains are wealth, leisure, contact with many minds, large urban centers where commodities and ideas are exchanged. The two contrasted environments produce directly certain economic and social results, which, in turn, become the causes of secondary intellectual and artistic effects. The low mountains of central Germany which von Trich cites as homes of poets and artists, owing to abundant and varied mineral wealth, are the seats of active industries and dense populations, while their low reliefs present no serious obstacle to the numerous highways across them. They, therefore, afford all conditions for culture. Let us take a different example. The rapid modification in physical and mental constitution of the English transplanted to North America, South Africa, Australia and New Zealand has been the result of several geographic causes working through the economic and social media, but it has been ascribed by Darwin and others to the effect of climate. The prevailing energy and initiative of colonists have been explained by the stimulating atmosphere of their new homes. Even Natal has not escaped this soft impeachment, but the enterprise of colonials has cropped out. Under almost every condition of heat and cold, aridity and humidity, of a habitat at sea level and on high plateau, this blanket theory of climate cannot, therefore, cover the case. Careful analysis supersedes it by a whole group of geographic factors working directly and indirectly. The first of these was the dividing ocean which, prior to the introduction of cheap ocean transportation and bustling steerage agents, made a basis of artificial selection. Then it was the man of abundant energy who, cramped by the narrow environment of a Norwegian farm or Irish bog, 
came over to America to take up a quarter section of prairie land or rise to the eminence of Boston Police Sergeant. The Scotch immigrants in America who fought in the Civil War were nearly two inches taller than the average in the home country, but the ocean barrier called superior qualities of mind and character also independence of political and religious conviction, and the courage of those convictions, whether found in Royalist or Puritan, Huguenot or English Catholic, such colonists in a remote country were necessarily few and could not be readily reinforced from home. Their new and isolated geographical environment favored variation. Heredity passed on the characteristics of a small, highly selected group. The race was kept pure from intermixture with the aborigines of the country, owing to the social and cultural abyss which separated them, and to the steady withdrawal of the natives before the advance of the whites. The homogeneity of island people seems to indicate that individual variations are in time communicated by heredity to a whole population under conditions of isolation, and in this way modifications due to artificial selection and a changed environment become widely spread. Nor is this all. The modified type soon becomes established, because the abundance of land at the disposal of the colonists and the consequent better conditions of living encourage a rapid increase of population. A second geographic factor of mere area here begins to operate. Ease in gaining subsistence. The greater independence of the individual and the family. Emancipation from carping care. The hopeful attitude of mind engendered by the consciousness of an almost unlimited opportunity and capacity for expansion. The expectation of large returns upon labor. And, finally, the profound influence of this hopefulness upon the national character. All combined, produce a social rejuvenation of the race. New conditions present new problems which call for prompt and original solution, make a demand upon the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the individual, and therefore work to the same end as his previous removal from the paralyzing effect of custom in the old home country. Activity is youth and sluggishness or paralysis is age, hence the energy, initiative, adaptability, and receptivity to new ideas all youthful qualities which characterize the Anglo-Saxon American as well as the English Africander can be traced back to the stimulating influences, not of a bracing or variable climate, but of the abundant opportunities offered by a great, rich, and exploited country. Variation under new natural conditions, when safeguarded by isolation, tends to produce modification of the colonial type, this is the direct effect of a changed environment, but the new economic and social activities of a transplanted people become the vehicle of a mass of indirect geographic influences which contribute to the differentiation of the national character. The tendency to overlook such links between conspicuous effects and their remote, less evident geographic causes has been common in geographic investigation. This direct rather than indirect approach to the heart of the problem has led to false inferences or to the assumption that reliable conclusions were impossible. Environment influences the higher mental life of a people chiefly through the medium of their economic and social life, hence its ultimate effects should be traced through the latter back to the underlying cause, but rarely has this been done, even so astute a geographer as Strabo, though he recognizes the influence of geographic isolation in differentiating dialects and customs in Greece, ascribes some national characteristics to the nature of the country, especially to its climate, and the others to education and institutions. He thinks that the nature of their respective lands had nothing to do with making the Athenians cultured, the Spartans and Thebans ignorant, that the predilection for natural science in Babylonia and Egypt was not a result of environment but of the institutions and education of those countries. But here arise the questions, how far custom and education in their turn depend upon environment, 
to a lot degree natural conditions, molding economic and political development, may through them fundamentally affect social customs, education, culture, and the dominant intellectual aptitudes of a people. It is not difficult to see, back of the astronomy and mathematics and hydraulics of Egypt, the far-off sweep of the rain-laden monsoons against the mountains of Abyssinia and the creeping of the tiny Nile flood over that river-born oasis. Plutarch states in his, Solon, that after the rebellion of Chilon in 612 BC the Athenian people were divided into as many political factions as there were physical types of country in Etica. The mountaineers, who were the poorest party, wanted something like a democracy, the people of the plains, comprising the greatest number of rich families, were clamorous for an oligarchy, the coast population of the south, intermediate both in social position and wealth, wanted something between the two. The same threefold division appeared again in 564 BC on the usurpation of Pisistratus. Here the connection between geographic condition and political opinion is clear enough. Though the links are agriculture and commerce, New England's opposition to the War of 1812, culminating in the threat of secession of the Hartford Convention, can be traced back through the active maritime trade to the broken coastline and unproductive soil of that glaciated country in all democratic or representative forms of government permitting free expression of popular opinion. History shows that division into political parties tends to follow geographical lines of cleavage. In our own civil war the dividing line between north and south did not always run east and west. The mountain area of the southern Appalachians supported the Union and drove a wedge of disaffection into the heart of the south. Mountainous West Virginia was politically opposed to the tidewater plains of Old Virginia because slave labor did not pay on the barren, upright, farms of the Cumberland Plateau, whereas, it was remunerative on the wide fertile plantations of the coastal lowland. The ethics of the question were obscured where conditions of soil and topography made the institution profitable. In the mountains, as also in New England, a law of diminishing financial returns had for its corollary a law of increasing moral insight. In this case, Geographic conditions worked through the medium of direct economic effects to more important political and ethical results. The roots of geographic influence often run far underground before coming to the surface. To sprout into some flowering growth, and to trace this back to its parent stem is the necessary but not easy task of the geographer. The complexity of this problem does not end here. The modification of human development by environment is a natural process, like all other natural processes. It involves the cumulative effects of causes operating imperceptibly but persistently through vast periods of time. Slowly and deliberately does geography engrave the subtitles to a people's history. Neglect of this time element in the consideration of geographic influences accounts equally for many unexaggerated assertion and denial of their power. A critic undertakes to disprove modification through physical environment by showing that it has not produced tangible results in the last 50 or 500 years. This attitude recalls the early geologists, whose imaginations could not conceive the vast ages necessary in a scientific explanation of geologic phenomena. The theory of evolution has taught us in science to think in larger terms of time, so that we no longer raise the question whether European colonists in Africa can turn into Negroes, though we do find the recent amazing statement that the Yankee, in his tall, gaunt figure, the color of his skin, and the formation of his hair, has begun to differentiate himself from his European kinsmen and approach the type of the aboriginal Indians. Evolution tells the story of modification by a succession of infinitesimal changes, and emphasizes the permanence of a modification once produced long after the causes for it cease to act. 
the mesas of Arizona. The earth sculpture of the Grand Canyon remain as monuments to the erosive forces which produced them. So a habitat leaves upon man no ephemeral impress, it affects him in one way at a low stage of his development, and differently at a later or higher stage, because the man himself and his relation to his environment have been modified in the earlier period, but traces of that earlier adaptation survive in his mature life. Hence man's relation to his environment must be looked at through the perspective of historical development. It would be impossible to explain the history and national character of the contemporary English solely by their 20th century response to their environment, because with insular conservatism they carry and cherish vestiges of times when their islands represented different geographic relations from those of today. Witness the wool sack of the Lord Chancellor. We cannot understand the location of modern Athens, Rome or Berlin from the present-day relations of urban populations to their environment because the original choice of these sites was dictated by far different considerations from those ruling today. In the history of these cities a whole succession of geographic factors have in turn been active, each leaving its impress of which the cities become, as it were, repositories. The importance of this time element for a solution of anthropogeographic problems becomes plainer, where a certain locality has received an entirely new population, or where a given people by migration change their habitat. The result in either case is the same, a new combination, new modifications superimposed on old modifications, and it is with this sort of case that anthropogeography most often has to deal. So restless has mankind been, that the testimony of history and ethnology is all against the assumption that a social group has ever been subjected to but one type of environment during its long period of development from a primitive to a civilized society. Therefore, If we assert that a people is the product of the country which it inhabits at a given time, we forget that many different countries which its forebears occupied have left their mark on the present race in the form of inherited aptitudes and traditional customs acquired in those remote ancestral habitats. The Moors of Granada had passed through a wide range of ancestral experiences, they bore the impress of Asia, Africa and Europe, and on their expulsion from Spain carried back with them to Morocco traces of their peninsular life. A race or tribe develops certain characteristics in a certain region, then moves on, leaving the old abode but not all the accretions of custom, social organization and economic method there acquired. These travel on with the migrant people, some are dropped, others are preserved because of utility, sentiment or mere habit. For centuries after the settlement of the Jews in Palestine, traces of their pastoral life in the grasslands of Mesopotamia could be discerned in their social and political organization in their ritual and literature. Survivals of their nomadic life in Asiatic steppes still persist among the Turks of Europe. After six centuries of sedentary life in the best agricultural land of the Balkan Peninsula, one of these appears in their choice of meat. They eat chiefly sheep and goats, beef very rarely, and swine not at all. The first to thrive on poor pastures and travel well, so that they are admirably adapted to nomadic life in arid lands, the last two, far less so but on the other hand are the regular concomitant of agricultural life. The Turks taste today, therefore, is determined by the flocks and herds which he once pastured on the Transcaspian plains, the finished terrace agriculture and methods of irrigation, which the Saracens had learned on the mountain sides of Yemen through a schooling of a thousand years or more, facilitated their economic conquest of Spain, their intelligent exploitation of the country's resources for the support of their growing numbers in the favorable climatic conditions which Spain offered was a light heart task, because of the severe training which they had had in their Arabian home, 
The origin of Roman political institutions is intimately connected with conditions of the naturally small territory where arose the greatness of Rome. But now, after 2,000 years we see the political impress of this narrow origin spreading to the governments of an area of Europe immeasurably larger than the region that gave it birth. In the United States, little New England has been the source of the strongest influences modifying the political, religious and cultural life of half a continent, and as far as Texas and California these influences bear the stamp of that narrow, and productive environment which gave to its sons energy of character and ideals. Ideas especially are light baggage, and travel with migrant peoples over many a long and rough road. They are wafted like winged seed by the wind, and strike root in regions where they could never have originated. Few classes of ideas bear so plainly the geographic stamp of their origin as religious ones, yet none have spread more widely. The abstract monotheism sprung from the bare grasslands of Western Asia made slow but final headway against the exuberant forest gods of the early Germans. Religious ideas travel far from their seedbeds along established lines of communication. We had the almost amusing episode of the brawny Burgundians of the 5th century, who received the Aryan form of Christianity by way of the Danube Highway from the schools of Athens and Alexandria valiantly supporting the niceties of Greek religious thought against their own inversion of the faith which came up the Rhone Valley. If the sacred literature of Judaism and Christianity take weak hold upon the Western mind, this is largely because it is written in the symbolism of the pastoral nomad. Its figures of speech reflect life in deserts and grasslands. For these figures the Western mind has few or vague corresponding ideas. It loses, therefore, half the import, for instance, of the 23rd Psalm. That picture of the nomad shepherd guiding his flock across parched and trackless plains, to bring them at evening, weary, hungry, thirsty, to the fresh pastures and waving palms of some oasis, whose green tints stand out in vivid contrast to the tiny wastes of the encompassing sands. He leadeth me beside the still waters, not the noisy rushing stream of the rainy lands, but the 